Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Money Talk Radio. This is your host, Nick Augustine. The show is produced by ProServe Public Relations, a business development public relations firm serving law and finance professionals. We work hard to bring you new and pragmatic content on both our weekly shows. On Tuesdays at 4 o'clock Central, we bring you Law Talk Radio, and on Thursdays, we broadcast Money Talk Radio program also at 4 o'clock Central. Today's show is called Understanding Market Volatility with Chris Kemble. Christopher Kemble is our guest to address market volatility, investments, long-term care insurance, annuities, and effective means of wealth preservation and transfers. Christopher Kemble has a master's degree in financial services and is a frequent speaker to public and industry groups. Today, Chris is the regional director for Money Concepts Capital Corporation, and he's been in practice since 1993 and has been a million-dollar roundtable member since 1996. Chris focuses on pre-retirees, retirees, and small business owners. The following are some of Chris's additional designations, uh, Prudential Gold Level Financial Planner, President's Hall of Honor, Master's Council, Financial Planning Vanguard Awards, President's Citations, Distinguished Sales and Marketing Award, and Financial Planner of the Year. For more information about Money Concepts Capital Corp., you can visit the website at www.moneyconcepts.com. So we welcome our callers today. If you have any questions, you can dial into the show. Of course, our programming is neutral and objective. Your counterpoints are always welcome. Dial 917-889-9732 and then press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. That telephone number again is 917-889-9732. This is a general information program. The advice shared on the show does not constitute professional advice. Communications with attorneys and finance professionals on our shows does not give rise to professional relationships. ProServe Public Relations does not necessarily endorse all of the opinions expressed by our guests. Finally, all callers are confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. Upcoming events uh, we want to let you know about. We'll read some later in the show, but we want to share with you that ProServe Public Relations is a PR and consulting firm serving law and finance industry professionals, and we engage in all sorts of programming and event promotions. So if you want to host an industry programming event or other uh, social network opportunity, please let us know. If you have an event you already have and want to advertise on this show and through our propriety network resources, please send us a message through the contact page on our website, which is located at www.proservepr.com, which is P-R-O-S-E-R-V-E-P-R.com. Now, as far as subject matter for today's show, we want to know who you can listen to and trust during volatile economic times. Do you see yourself asking your friends and colleagues for financial advice because you just don't trust what you see on television? Well, don't panic. Christopher Kimball, again, our guest today is a frequent speaker and financial advisor. He's going to walk us through today's hot topics in finance. Number one, stock market volatility and the boring way to deal with it. Number two, the investment ladder, where to invest and when, followed by three, all about long-term care insurance, spending money to save money, followed by four, where there's a will, there's a way to effectively trans, uh, pass, for, uh, pass wealth to heirs, that is. And uh, finally, number five, understanding annuities and where insurance companies seem to make it a little bit confusing. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Chris Kremble. Chris, thanks and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks a lot for having me, Nick. This is uh, this is great. I really appreciate it. And of course, uh, you you mentioned a lot of topics. I don't think we'll be able to get to all of them, but uh, I'll sure give it a try. Well, we'll scratch the surface. I mean, the one thing that we really want to do on the show is uh, tell people the real deal of what's going on. And uh, should we panic? Should we not panic? I mean, I, I heard from someone yesterday say 
everybody's selling their gold. First they cashed out all their securities to buy gold, and now they're selling it off. And um, there just seems to be, you know, what I saw in 2008 was just this speculative panic. And uh, I think if people would have just uh, ridden the storm for a while, they'd be better off. But that's really your area. So I turn it over to you. First, talking about stock market volatility. We see so much on TV. Um, people see different messages. Um, most of us you know, want to know whether we have confidence when we're talking to our advisors. What sort of things should we know? What do you have to say about this volatility and how should we deal with it? You say it's the boring way? I, it sounds good to me. <laughs> well, in one of my newsletters, I, I started out by saying, I've found the secret to happiness. And that is not a big house, not a lot of money. It's actually not watching cable news networks uh, because they sell based on fear. And that's what draws people into most uh, television and a lot of radio shows as well, the present company excluded, of course. And the, the thing that, that they want to do is they want to keep people glued to the screen. You don't do that by saying, just keep doing what you're doing, don't panic. That, that will cause people to flip over to watch reruns of Leave it to Beaver. If you say the world is coming to an end, People will be glued to the screen. They'll watch the commercials right along with the news, and that's what makes the media tick. So what you have to understand is that all through history, there have been doomsday scenarios. There's been awful situations, and yet we've always come out of it, and we've always uh, overcome any fear or any problem that might have been short-term. Uh, I think about, for example, in my lifetime, a couple of things that happened. One was when President Carter was in office, they, we had inflation in the double digits. I remember sitting in my parents' uh, 63 Belvedere station wagon in those little seats that used to face backward. And I was looking out the back window at a line of cars, right just bumper to bumper behind us. Now, some of the people listening are probably old enough to remember what that was. That was the day that we could get gasoline. Every other day, if you had an even license plate, you could get gas. On the other days, it was the other people's turn. But you had to wait every other day to buy gasoline. That is scary. We haven't seen that. We've seen stock prices going down. We've seen joblessness. And that's all very, very bad. But things have been bad before. It took a change of administration, some changes in tax law, and some other things that gave us the longest period of growth in our history. So uh, think of World War II. We had Europe decimated. Japan was pretty much wiped out. We had you know, millions of people that had been killed worldwide. That, my friends, is a global crisis. Our debt-to-GDP ratio was worse then than it is now, but we pulled out of it. America is a very strong, very resilient country. Now, that being said, are we in for some tough times? I think we are. I think volatility is with us, at least for the short term. The market is going up and down in, in hysterically. And what that shows is that it is trading on fear. That brings us right back to what I said initially. People are scared. Uh, remember, everybody listening has got to remember this. In 1999, if you remember, in about, well, less than a year, during any time in 1999, we all just knew that planes were going to drop out of the sky, businesses would shut down, the entire electrical grid in this country would blow up, things were going to grind to a halt, it would be the end of life as we know it. Why? Because of the millennium bug. Remember that? January 1st, 2000, 
nothing happened. So you, people will just thrive on excitement and fear and what's going to happen. Bottom line is no one knows. It's best to have a pro- appropriate diversified portfolio, rebalance periodically, and don't freak out. Well, can we have that list again? The list of, of why not to panic? <laughs> well, what you, you need to do. diversified portfolio. Yeah, diversified portfolio based on your time horizon and your risk tolerance. Everybody's different. So if you're very close to retirement, you probably don't want a bunch of very volatile investments. You probably want quite a bit of stability. On the other hand, if you're young, you're just starting out, and you don't mind a little risk-taking, by all means, be aggressive, because long-term, generally 15, 20 years, the more aggressive investments have done better. Again, no guarantees, but you look back over history, and that's what it shows. Uh, The other thing is the emotion can damage your returns tremendously. They've done study after study, and what they found is that the over the last 20 years, for example, the last uh, 20 years in the market has generated in equities probably 8 9%, something like that. The average equity investor has done about three, you know, between three and four. Why is that? Because they don't stay where they need to stay. They panic. They bail. It relates to just what you said during the opening. When, pe- when the market's going down, people start selling like a bunch of lemmings, and they end up selling at the bottom. Then the market shoots back up again, and everybody thinks, ooh, great, now's the time to buy. So basically, they sell low and buy high, which is the opposite of what you should do. So if you have a, 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 I mean, some people use the term buckets. You know, you have different, different little pots of money, and some of it's very conservative, and some of it is more aggressive. And you draw from those when appropriate. And if, for example, the market is like right now, equities are struggling, maybe it's time to take some money out of the conservative investments and put it into equities. And then when the equities shoot up, you take a little out of the equities and put it back in the conservative bucket. It's very basic, but it's very hard to do emotionally. That's why I recommend rebalancing every quarter or every six months. Take your portfolio, find out what percentage of your money should be in these various little pots, and then sell what you need to, buy what you need to, to get back to where you need to be. Now, my next question and these are good, so again, diversify portfolio, avoid emotion, and rebalance. How often do you say every few months? Well, I generally rebalance quarterly, although every six months, even annually, is probably okay. I read a, a study recently in the uh, Journal of Financial Planning. They did some calculations, and they found that over long periods of time, you know, 15, 20 years, the difference between rebalancing you know, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, or annually was very, very small. So I think that probably, you know, twice a year is probably okay. Quarterly is okay. Uh, sometimes if the market does something really dramatic, there's a school of thought that says maybe you should rebalance at that point. But no one really knows what the market's going to do in the short term. In fact, I think, it was, I think it was Warren Buffett. I may be wrong, but I think it was Warren Buffett that said there's no such thing as short-term investing. That's called speculating. And it's really true. You can have the most brilliant Ph.D. telling you that based on the charts and the graphs and the research that the market's going to do such and such. And then all of a sudden you have, oh, let's say, hypothetically, a tsunami that hits Japan. (laughs) 
you know, I don't know of any expert that can really predict that kind of thing. So uh, that that is an unknown, and it'll always be an unknown. And that's why when I hear people predicting the market or drawing charts and graphs, I sort of chuckle because you don't really know what's going to happen. You need to do time-tested, boring, <laughs> boring techniques, and long-term, that, that will probably serve you the best. I've got clients that uh, have basically uh, done better than, say, the S&P 500 over a period of time because they stuck to their guns and they diversified and they didn't panic. Right. Now, one of the time-tested and boring techniques, I suppose, is looking at uh, timelines or considering these. And uh, one of the things that always pops into my head is the concept of a farmer's almanac, uh, suggesting how cyclical weather may be and also markets uh, we often find are so cyclical as well. Uh, do you find any good rules of thumb in looking at timelines for people who are maybe doing this on their own, thinking, all right, how long should I really wait to see the rebound activity, or should I dump this? Well, I think in in those kinds of questions lend themselves to people who are doing, uh, you know, either day trading or individual securities or perhaps some more volatile mutual funds, because. Again, if you're looking at those sorts of those sorts of questions, you're really looking at market timing. And I am not a market timer. I don't think it works long term. I mean, you have to be right twice. You got to know exactly when to get in and exactly when to get out. And historically, that doesn't seem to work. I, I've often said that uh, if you uh, guess the market right once, people think you're man. Maybe you're lucky. Maybe you're maybe you're smart. But then if you happen to guess twice correctly in a row then you become an expert and you become brilliant. And then usually the third or fourth time you blow it and suddenly nobody's ever heard of you and you disappear into the woodwork. And that's yeah. happened many, many times with, with uh, so-called experts. I think what you need to do more than trying to time the market is look at your own timeline. In fact, I think personally that timeline, when you need the money and how long you'll be taking the money out when the time comes, is far more important than how old you are or even risk tolerance, frankly. Because if you've got somebody who's, say, 60, and they're not going to need the money till they're 80, and they're planning on working till they're 79, that portfolio might not look too different than somebody who's 40 but wants to retire at 57. So the age is not quite as important. Another, another aspect is what is the money supposed to do? I've got clients who are older, and they have uh, pretty pretty volatile portfolios because they don't need the money. They don't want the money. They want to leave it to their kids. And so they figure their kids have a longer time horizon anyway, so they might as well invest it a little bit more aggressively. On the other hand, I have people who are younger who really need to have that money be a little bit safer because maybe they have a job that's somewhat uncertain. And uh, worst case scenario, they might have to rob some of their investments to pay down debt or even pay for lifestyle expenses, you know, food, for example. In that situation, they might have to be a little bit more conservative or have some of their money in a little bit more conservative position because they may have to use it. The thing you don't want to do is have your investments in something very aggressive when you might have to use it in a year or two or three. 
Makes a lot of sense. Makes so much sense. We're going to be right back with Chris Kimball. We're going to pause for our first event message, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the investment ladder and where to invest and when. Now, our first event comes to you from a group of people here in Chicago, and the title of this upcoming event, by the way, mark your calendars, it's October 27th from 7 to 9.30 a.m. event is titled, Critical Financial Estate Planning and Asset Protection Decisions to Make in 2011. Again, Critical Financial Estate Planning and Asset Protection Planning Decisions to Make in 2011. The event is sponsored by Today's Chicago Woman and the Metropolitan Club of Chicago. Again, the event takes place October 27th from 7.30 to 9.30 a.m. The faculty presenting at this event are as follows. Number one, we have Micheline Gordon, who is an attorney with an LLM, in, uh, and she's also of counsel to Anthony J. Madonia Associates here in Chicago. She's an attorney and estate planner who's been working with businesses and individuals and their families to protect and preserve transfer of wealth for over 25 years. Next, we have Susan Templeton, who's the founder and managing partner partner of Stafford Wells Advisors, a Chicago wealth advisory firm that works with families and individuals in planning and investing for their future. And finally, we have Henry Silverman, who's a PhD from Roosevelt University, faculty, assistant professor in finance, teaching courses in mutual fund investment, financial markets, and institutions, as well as international financial analysts and uh, investment theory. So to register for this event, you can uh, contact Micheline at RSVPTCW at Madonia.com. I'll read that again. RSVPTCW at Madonia, M A D O N I A. Dot com, or you can simply dial 312 626 2916. That telephone number again is 312 626 Also, if you want to make sense of more public relations and marketing, but you don't want to hire a third-party firm to outsource the work, you can do so much on your own. ProServe PR is here to help you with a variety of consulting workshops and custom marketing and public relations systems that we build around your current workflow and business style. Please visit ProServePR.com and send us a message through the contact page to get started. Now, getting back to our radio program today, we want to mention again, if you have a guest suggestion for an upcoming Money Talk radio broadcast, let us know. You can drop us a note on our website or our Facebook fan page. You can simply search in Facebook for Money Talk Radio. Now, getting back to our show with Chris Kremble, we talked a little bit uh, at the beginning of the show about stock market volatility and a nice boring way to deal with it, which is really riding the storm and uh, having a, a good, sound, diversified portfolio and managing your emotions and certainly balancing your percentages uh, quarterly or every six months. So moving on, we're going to talk a little bit more about when you are investing, where should you invest, and when. Chris? Yeah, this this relates to uh, where we left off, and that's basically the concept of time horizon. And time horizon is, again, not only how old you are, it's not only when you're going to start taking the money, it also has to do with how long do you need the money to last. Basically, there's a I think there's a bumper sticker I've seen once or twice that says something like, I want, to be, I want my last check to bounce. <laughs> you know, last check you ever write, you want it to bounce. In other words, you run out of life the same time you run out of money. That's a, that's a nice goal, although it's uh, somewhat hard to achieve. Plus, a lot of people do want to leave somewhat of a legacy to their children or their heirs, and that means you've got to have a little bit more money than you really need. So when you take a look at your own personal needs, there are lots and lots of rules of thumb about how much money you need to generate how much income and so on. 
But I caution the listeners to be very careful with the rules of thumb because there are so many things that can change in life. For example, somebody's been saving for 40 years. They're just about ready to retire. They have all this money. They decide to put it in something that's moderately aggressive because they want to make sure that they have enough income and they also want to leave some money to their kids. Well, that's all well and good. But let's say that this person suddenly gets diagnosed with a disease that is going to kill them in, say, oh, two years. Well, that changes everything because all of a sudden you could take that big chunk of money and you could put it in the bank. Put it in something, CDs that are paying 1% because you're not going to spend it all in two years. Why take risk if you don't have to? One of the things that I think is very important and you want to talk to your advisor about if you have one is how little risk can I take? Uh, I just reviewed uh, uh, a portfolio and this woman was very, very elderly and 50% of her investments were in individual stocks. And it was, it was like, why? Why do you need to take those kinds of risks? She got hammered in 2008. Luckily, it came back because she didn't bail, which was to her credit. But the fact of the matter is, I ran the numbers, she only had to make 0.22% on her money. And there's no way she would outlive it. So, again, what's the smallest amount of risk? When you, when you look at what your expenses are, you've also got to figure out inflation. If you say today, for example, well... I need $50,000 a year. My house will be paid off when, I, when I'm retired, and so 50000 a year is all I will need to live. Well, depending on what inflation does, and inflation is, is, it sneaks up on you. Sometimes you don't even realize it's happening, but it's there. And if inflation kicks in to any kind of reasonable amount, in 15 years you might need $100,000 of income for the same lifestyle as what $50,000 would get you today. So don't think that because you have a million dollars in the bank today, you're going to generate $50,000 a year relatively safely, and in 15 years that'll be great. Fact is, you'll need $2 million to generate the same buying power. Uh, I had a conversation with someone years ago, and she said, well, why don't I just take my $1,000 and put it under the bed and then a year later, I'll still have $1,000. What's the problem with that? And I said, the problem with this is that you want to buy a pair of shoes today that cost $100, but you decide you're going to take this $100 and put it under your bed, and you're going to take uh, you know, $900 and put that somewhere else in the bed, and you're going to hide this $1,000 because you want to buy something a year from now. Well, guess what? You go to the, sh- the store in a year, and those $100 shoes cost $110 or $107, or whatever. Bottom line is the price will probably go up. In fact, I just had that happen. I bought, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I bought these shoes. They were 100 bucks. They were nice. I liked them. They were going to last a long time. They did. It lasted about, I don't know, five years, seven years, whatever it was. Went back to the store. They were having a big sale. So I went back and thinking, I'll get the exact same kind of shoes, and now they're on sale. And the price was $100. And I said, wait a second, I thought these things were on sale. And they said, they are. The regular price is $150. <laughs> they were the same shoes that I buy. I said, these are the same things I bought seven years ago. So that's what happens with inflation. So you can't just stick your money in a mattress. You can't have all your money in a, a CD if you need to keep up with inflation. Now, as I said before, if you've got unlimited wealth, then why take any risk at all? But most of us don't. Most of us have to have some kind of investment that's going to grow with inflation 
to keep up so that we won't end up eating cat food when we're 75. And and the way you do that is you take a look at the need, the amount you're going to have to have, you figure out what you have now, you run the numbers as far as what does that amount have to grow to to provide the needs I have when I need to start taking it out, and you figure general life expectancy in terms of how long it has to last and so on. And then basically you make some kind of assumption of what interest rate you're going to get on the investment. And then the last piece is how much do you have to put in to get to where you need to go. And I'll tell you, it's frightening. The average 50-year-old in this country, from the last statistic I read, has $25,000 saved for retirement. Think about that. 50 years old, the entire retirement portfolio is $25,000. We're that a pay- long time, too. Uh, right. People are living longer all the time. That's exactly right. Life expectancy every year for the past 100 years has grown. And uh, back when Social Security was started, the average life expectancy was 64. Social Security was supposed to kick in at 65, and people lived to be 64. So guess what? The system worked pretty well. There were 30 people working for every one person taking out. Today, average life expectancy is somewhere between 75 and 80, depending on if you're a man or a woman, and there are now three people putting in to Social Security for every uh, one person that is taking money out. So you can see the ramifications of lifespan. It's really a problem, and the same goes for your retirement nest egg. How much are you going to have to put away? Well, if you're going to live a long time, you've got to put away more, and it's frightening for people when they see those numbers. So my my uh, my advice is start paying yourself 10 15% right off the top, you know, if you tithe, great. Take 10% off the top and tithe, and then take 10 or 15% off for yourself and put it away somewhere because you're going to need it. People say, oh, I can't afford to take 10 15% out of my pay. I wouldn't be able to pay the bills. And my response to that is, well, if you can't live on 85% of what you're making now, how are you going to live on 40% of what you're making now when you retire? Because for a lot of people, Social Security only replaces about 40% of their income. So you got problems if you're not saving. Yeah, it's a very scary proposition. What's some advice for you on people who are in the situation where, let's say, they had uh, a good portfolio and things were doing well for a while and then life happened? Um, let's say your daughter got married, your kid went to college, and, um, you know, as the parents often of the you know, children who can't find jobs these days, uh, now they have more expenses. So what if you did uh, and had good planning and you've been sort of wiped out early and you're looking to start over? What are some good ways, uh, or maybe some mantras you should tell yourself <laughs> first? Well, yeah, the the first mantra is you have to face reality. And reality in the cases you've described primarily surround working longer. If you can work, you're going to have to. I, I gosh, This is a true story that just makes me so mad. Lady, she was, I think she was in her 60s, mid-60s maybe, 63, 64, if I remember correctly, Anyway, we got together, and she said, you know, I need to think about my retirement. Um, I, you know, I got a divorce, and a divorce is always, this is uh, one of my tangential comments, divorce is always terrible for financial planning. It basically blows up the best financial plans pretty quickly. This lady had gotten a divorce, and she said, but I'm in really good shape because I got the house, and it's completely paid off, free and clear. And I said, well, that's that's great. Uh, I'm sorry about the divorce, but good thing you got a, a house that has no mortgage. Now, I said, let's talk about when you want to retire. 
she said, well, I'm 60, unless I think it was 60, let's say 64, uh, because I don't remember exactly, but we'll say 64. It was that, that range. She said, I'm 64 right now. I'd like to retire at about 66, maybe 67. And I said, okay, that's about, uh, you know, three, four, four years from now. Uh, how much money do you have saved in your portfolio? And she said, I have about, uh, oh, at this point, I think it's about $57,000. And I looked at her and I said, well, how much money are you making now? And she said, I'm making about $67,000 per year. And so I looked at her and I thought, you know, you've got to be kidding. I said, if you have $67,000 a year income and you've got like two-thirds of that or whatever it is, maybe, uh, you know, four-fifths of that in your retirement account, uh, that means today if you retired, you'd live for about, oh, maybe a year, a little less, and then you'd have no money. If you figure Social Security is going to kick in, I think in her case it was about thirty grand a year, I said then you're going to need $30,000 a year uh, of additional income, and the money you've got will last about maybe two years, two and a half years, uh, and then you're out of money, and you're going to have to cut your lifestyle way back. I said, if you're going to retire in three or four years, you'd have to put away, and I did. it was some ridiculous amount, you know, $150,000 a year or something. I said, uh, you know, your house is paid off, but guess what? You've got property taxes. They keep going up. Heating expenses, electricity, those keep going up. I said, uh, the only thing you're going, to ha- you're going to be able to do is work till you're probably 74, 75 years old. I said, that's the only choice you have because you can't spend the house. You know, what are you going to do, try to take a, a, a second mortgage out or something on it or, or uh, get it refinanced when you're not working and you're 73 years old? I mean, good luck, especially now. So the reality just didn't occur to her. And she looked at me and she got angry. And, and she would, just didn't want to face reality. But the fact of the matter is, if you're in that situation, the only choice you have is to work longer. The longer you work, the more time you have to put away money and the shorter time you're going to need to take it out. Uh, if you don't have family to move in with or a friend you can share an apartment with or something, working longer is about the only thing you can do. Well, uh, you know, it's a reality that uh, so many people look at, and, um, you know, it's a difficult thing. I just look at graduates coming out of professional schools, um, you know, for, for law schools especially, uh, some of the who graduating are saying, I'm not finding a job, I don't, you know, and then you're suggesting start putting money away for the future, and a lot of people are already underemployed by what they anticipated, but, uh, well, let's you know, listen. My... After the break, let's let's talk about that very subject because I do have some ideas and I'd love to share them. So make sure and uh, don't forget to ask me about that. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our next lead-in after, and it is time to take a break anyway. So we're going to give you a resource message from uh, one of our friends, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what happens if you uh, get out of get out of school and are starting a job and are making less than you expected. Should you still plan for the future? I think you should. Chris will tell us how. All right. Our next uh, resource we want to tell you about is Market Gauge. Market Gauge applies insider knowledge gained from years of professional trading experience on and off the running money for major New York hedge funds and currently managing a hedge fund, MarketGage Master Traders created the powerful proprietary web-based software tools HotScans, BigView, the Nuggets List, and the ETF Monitor. These subscription-based tools have been built for thousands of individual traders as well as institutional clients such as Reuters, Barron's Online, Fidelity, Intershow, and Townsend Analytics. 
MarketGate specializes in technical analysis tools and stock tips as well as trader education in swing trading, day trading, and the opening range. Michelle Mish Snyder is the Director of Trading and Education and Research for Market Gauge. She provides in-depth trading, trading, trading training, I'm sorry about that, trader training as well as market analyst writer, and she's the host of Mish's Market Minute. She contributes to several online trading publications in a series of trading strategy articles called Taking Stock. She serves as a regular contributor to Market Gauge's free newsletter. So, Market Gauge for all things trading, education, and more. Now, as we get back to our program, and apologize for the sirens outside today, um, we remind, remind our listeners that our broadcast links are available to be rebroadcast in your social networks, and many people do find our shows based on their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages. We certainly thank all of you for your support in sharing links to our programming. Now, back to our show, we're talking to Chris Kimball today, and uh, the thing we're going to talk about next is what to do if you find yourself coming out of school as a professional and you are making less money than you thought, um, and the thought of putting money away uh, just seems implausible, especially if you're a freelancer or working for several different people to make ends meet. Chris, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm going to start with a concept, an idea that may be considered shocking or uh, revolutionary or impossible, uh, and that is to forget about the American dream of owning a home and living in an apartment with a big TV and a nice car, uh, because for a time you may not be able to do that. I remember I was given a seminar once, and I was talking about the fact that there were people that were losing their jobs and people were really struggling. And I said, you know, you ought to think about this. Everybody in America thinks they should have their own domicile. That's, again, part of the American dream, as I mentioned. But in a lot of countries, multiple families will share dwellings. You'll have two or three families sharing one house or even one, maybe a large apartment. And that's what they do. And if you do that, you can share expenses. Expenses that are cut means you have more money to start putting away for the future. I said, if you think about it, if you have half of a house payment, and let's say you were, uh, you were unable to make a full house payment, now all you have to make is a half a house payment. Well, chances are maybe you have a quarter of a house payment left. That's money you can start putting aside. And in the back of the room, a hand went up, and a gentleman said, my wife and I just had to do that. We gave up our house, and we were able to move in with some friends, and we're sharing expenses now. And for even for babysitting and those kinds of things, uh, things you wouldn't normally think about that you could save money by consolidating, we're, we're experiencing that, and we are starting to build up a little bit of savings. What I thought was interesting was that the emotion surrounding that decision, they were, you could tell they felt humiliated, they felt like failures, all that sort of thing. And, and again, this behavioral finance is so important to consider. People's emotions drive them to make really dumb decisions. If you can't afford your house, the smart decision is get rid of it and change your situation. But emotionally, the thought of losing your home or giving up your home, you feel like a failure. Well, if you lost your job through no fault of your own, if the economy has just done awful things to your savings and so on, it's not your fault necessarily. So you shouldn't feel like a failure. You should feel like you've had a tough go of it. But like you know, the old saying goes, you can't keep a good man down. And when you know the going gets tough, the tough get going and all those kinds of things. You have to really step back and say, I've got to let go of my preconceptions. 
I've got to forget about the pride of having a really nice car and a really nice place for a time, not forever, but for a time. You sell the fancy car, get rid of the car payment, buy a $2,000 or $1,500 car that's boring, stupid-looking, but reliable, get into an apartment or a house, share with other people who may have a tough time as well, or maybe they don't have a tough time, maybe they just want to help. Live that way for five or six years, put away the money you were making as a car payment, save money on food, save money on babysitting or anything like that, save money on rent or or house payments, insurance, heating bills, all of that sort of thing. You can come up with some money to put away. And in six years, seven years, you may have enough to have something to hold on to. And even if you're you know, paying off debt at the same time, balance it. Don't use every dime to pay off debt, even though from a numbers standpoint that might make the most sense. What really will help you is if you pay, say, 75% of your discretionary income on the debt, the other 25%, you start putting it away somewhere. And there are like Roth IRAs, for example. You can put money in a Roth IRA, and then if you need the money, basically the money you've contributed, you can take out again. You have to leave the earnings and growth in there, but you can take the, uh, the money you've contributed, you can take that out in a real emergency, and there's no taxes or penalties. So that's a retirement vehicle that can kind of serve dual purpose. If there aren't any terrible emergencies, which hopefully there won't be, you can save it for retirement, and there you go. Uh, on the other hand, if there's some terrible, awful tragedy and you've got to have that money, you can get to some of it without uh, penalties, and that's, again, kind of a, a nice safety net. But uh, the key is to try to balance your life. Uh, you know, you, people say they can't afford it. Well, good grief, the poorest in this country live like kings compared to, you know, people in, in 80% of the rest of the world. We can do without. I, I see people that, in fact, I'm on the board of a, of a uh, organization, a nonprofit that helps homeless families get out of homelessness, get them back to work, put them in subsidized housing, and once they kind of get their uh, feet back on dry land, as it were, they can make something of themselves, get back into society, and we have a pretty high success rate. It's, it's neat to see that. But the point is that some of these people, when we, when we meet them, they're, they're struggling, they don't have any money, they're, they're in dire straits, and they have a cell phone. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, wait a second. How could you, you have a cell phone and yet you complain you don't have enough to eat? I mean, here's a situation where maybe the priorities aren't quite right. And, of course, that's an extreme example. But even in today's, in today's society, I see people who are struggling to make ends meet, and they've got a car payment, they've got a, a big screen TV, they've got things that they consider to be necessities when in reality they're luxuries. And, and again, our society is one of success means having a lot of stuff. Well, sometimes there are periods in life where you don't get to have the stuff. You have to do the smart thing, which is sacrifice. If you do that and you make good decisions, then you won't be in that situation forever. You know, it's uh, such good advice, and I think back to the early 90s when I was in high, you know, finishing high school and going to college, and the amount of stuff we had 
uh, I think we were slaves to our stuff. And, it, you know, you have all this athletic equipment. Okay, let's make sure that we take our trip to Aspen to go snowboarding because we don't want to, you know, not use the brand-new snowboard we bought <laughs> because our friend got one. We had to have that. Um, you know, the you know, keeping up with, uh, you know, if you live in an affluent suburban uh, neighborhood, you certainly don't want the Mercedes with rust on the door like I had. Um, you know, you got to get the you know. So, but I'll tell you now, it, it's so true. I think that what we need to look at is, you know, a sort of a behavioral and, again, a mental health outlook at some of these things. And I will suggest, um, you know, having grown my business from zero, um, getting rid of the overhead and the stress and the golden shackles, as I will call them, um, you know, the golden handcuffs, get rid of them, and life becomes really simple. And you realize that it takes a lot less money to do a lot of things and be happy than I think it did before. So I think a lot of it is, is, is habit forming. And I think that putting 20, 25% away uh, when you already don't have very much to go around is just something that you get into the, the, the habit of doing that. And I think that if you do that, I think, and what, I, what I'll suggest, and Chris, I'll ask your comment on this, is by going through the discipline of taking money and putting it away, you have of some sort, you have a bit of an asset there because your element of control over even a small amount of money is something that you now have. And I, you know, I talk a lot about human capital assets and there are all sorts of different assets than financial assets. And I think it's just a matter of starting small and getting used to it and then building it up and then looking at how much money you spent in a month that you could have put in your uh, nest egg or wherever you're going to put it. So what are your, some of your thoughts, Chris, on people that you've talked to about getting into the habit uh, and forming these habits of savings? Well, you know, you actually hit on a number of extremely good, valid, important points. One of the things when I'm dealing with 401k participants, particularly when I'm dealing with uh, some of the 401k plans that I, I help out with, and they're they're wondering what they should do as far as putting money away, and you say, well, you ought to put away 20% of your pay. <laughs> they say, no way. What I really tell them is this. I said, if you haven't ever contributed, start with what you think you can do, maybe 5%, maybe 2% of your pay especially if it's a if it's a pre-tax non-Roth 401k contribution, it doesn't feel like 2 or 3% anyway because you would have had to pay tax on it. So, maybe out of pocket it's costing you uh, you know, $50, but $70 is going into your account or $65 is going into your account or whatever. Uh the point is start low, 1 or 2% if that's all you can do, but then every quarter just bump it up by 1% and you won't really feel it. But after a year or two, if you do that, you'll actually be putting away a decent amount of money. And you're absolutely right. When you have some kind of an account balance, you do feel better because you feel like you've done something worthwhile. You've actually contributed to your future, made a positive difference. And it, it, it is it's an emotional thing, but it's a very, very helpful thing. Another thing you talked about was, was happiness. They just uh, released a study, and I, when I say they, that's that big nameless faceless entity in the sky because I can't remember who it was, but I just heard it that uh, they measured happiness on a scale and they found that people in the 1930s, kind of during the Depression, were happier than the, in America than Americans are today. And think about that. Our standard of living is so much higher. We have so much more stuff, and yet we're less happy today than we were 30 years ago. It tells you something, but the problem is it's very easy to say 
We need to get divorced from our things. We need to be separate from our, our image of ourselves versus what we actually own. We need to segregate that. It's very easy to say, but it's almost impossible to do. Uh, I, you, you mentioned when you were in college, and I was a musician for, for years. In fact, I still am, but I actually got a real job, so now I, <laughs> I'm not starving anymore. But the fact of the matter is that when I came off the road touring with a band, I'd bought all kinds of expensive recording equipment had no money. And a friend and I were renting this house, I remember, and then he decided to move closer to town. And I was stuck in this house, and I couldn't pay the rent. So I told the guy uh, that owned the house I, I couldn't pay the rent. And he said, you know what, I'm trying to sell it. You can stay there free. So I was able to stay there for, I don't know, five or six months with no rent, and that was good. got me a chance to go out and get a, a real job, and then gradually from there things got better. But I know what it's like to have no money. And you're the biggest talk, problem you're, you're talking to the per- it's funny that you mentioned that because I, after graduating from law school, I spent two years as a, a touring director on the road for bands out of Southern California. And believe me, I know what it's like to work off door money, and we had to split that to get to the next town with flip between three bands. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. For two years, wonderful experience makes for a great entertainment guy and publicist now, but at the time. Not a lot. So we always made sure that we had fans on the next city to feed and help us. <laughs> exactly. But uh, uh, what I did was, again, emotionally I was pretty low because I felt like a failure. But I got a book that said how to put a resume together and get a job, and I basically just said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And I went in and I strode into the shop and I said, I want a job here. I would be really good for your company. And it was the first place I went to, and they said, you know what, we're looking for somebody. You're hired. So mental attitude has a lot to do with it as well. Don't let this economy get you down. Don't feel like a failure. You've got human capital potential. You need to build yourself up and then go out and convince somebody to hire you. It's so true. It's all a confidence game. I'll submit that I uh, spoke to uh, someone I know today who um, it works in finance and spent many years on Wall Street, I suppose, is knowledgeable enough to not watch cable network news and uh, is so busy working for and serving clients that this individual doesn't even, um, you know, was sort of surprised when I even suggested that people are tanking out there. And I wonder, are people really tanking or is it the speculation that makes us think we're tanking so everyone just assumes everyone's tanking? When in reality, I see so much, there's so much work going on. I constantly talk to people who are so overwhelmed with their burden of workload that they don't know what to do. So I think so much of this is a confidence game. We're going to be right back with Chris Kimball in a moment. We're going to read our last uh, event message. And uh, towards the end of our last 15 minutes in our program, we'll uh, hit on some points that we haven't already addressed. Um, our final event message we want to tell you about, our friend Carlo Licata is a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, and Carlo's our point man on a series of upcoming radio shows as well as educational events and some training webinars. We're going to watch the market roller coasters as we also use our trusted friends in finance to address specific trade groups and share some information about new products, services, and methods in unlocking capital and making sophisticated moves without risking the farm. For a schedule of industry-specific events, please be in touch with me, Nick Augustine, uh, through the contact portal on our website, which is, again, proservepr.com, P-R-O-S-E-R-V-E-P-R.com. Now, back to our show with Chris Kimball. Chris, a few things that we have not talked about. Uh, we didn't talk about the, the wills. Um, so we could talk about wills. We could talk about long-term care insurance. Uh, we could talk about um, different annuities and how the insurance companies make it very confusing, which uh, so many of these things are confusing, uh, especially with insurance and those products 
so a few people really understand what's going on. We have 15 minutes left, or actually we have about 12 minutes left. Chris, what are some uh, parting things that we should discuss here? <laughs> you mentioned uh, three things that probably deserve about 10 hours apiece for explanation. So We might have me, to have you back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, believe me, I could talk forever on these things because they are confusing. Uh, annuities I'll leave uh, for for a later time. Uh, they are, again, very, very complex and something that I don't even want to try to address in 12 minutes. Even uh, long-term care insurance, I had a lady in my office today, and we talked for over an hour and barely scratched the surface. It's, that's a very changing, quickly changing landscape, and I would encourage anybody that has questions to find someone who is well-versed in that, uh, somebody with, with a designation showing that they've actually studied it and know the ins and outs because it's not something you want to uh, take lightly uh, the wills business is again. There's there's so many intricacies. It's it's amazing. But I want to talk about that probably because I think that is something that affects everybody. Uh, whether you think you have a will or not, you really do. If you don't have a will that you made up, the state uh, in which you live pretty much has a will ready to go, uh, called intestate, meaning dying without a will. And that may not be where uh, you want your assets to go or how you want them distributed and so on. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I think the statistic is somewhere around half the people in the country don't have a will. And I would uh, I would argue that uh, everybody needs one unless you have absolutely no assets whatsoever. Uh, but even then, you should have a health care directive, something that tells your closest relative or whoever is in charge of you uh, what to do if you end up being on a machine being fed by a little bag. Uh, do you want the plug pulled? Do you want to stay on life support? Those sorts of decisions need to be made by somebody. And as part of most wills, those health care directives, the living wills and so on, those are included. Uh, but even talking about less depressing subjects, like let's say you have a lot of money and you want it to go to the right place, you need to be aware that a will is critical and so are non, uh, non-probate assets, it's called. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you die, what you own generally has to go through probate. I mean, it means proving the will. It's double-checking to make sure that your will is okay and where does, the, where does all the stuff go based on your will. A non-probate asset is something that doesn't go through the will or probate. It goes directly to a named beneficiary. And this could be life insurance, annuities, retirement plans, and a few other items, those are the biggest. And it's critical that you keep track of the beneficiary arrangements on those types of vehicles. Because a will is, as I mentioned, vital because it tells people where do you want your assets to go. But non-probate assets, those oftentimes get forgotten. And I'll give you an example. Clients of mine came in and they here's the situation. Their dad had worked for the post office for years. Uh, he had a little group life insurance policy, $100,000, and that was provided by the by the uh, post office. Well, this couple, nice people, were uh, you know being raised by mom and dad, and then mom died, and dad remarried. Now, dad remarried what was described to me as the wicked witch of the West. <laughs> it was like the typical wicked stepmother you read about in Grimm's fairy tales. And they did not get along with with new mom, and new mom did not get along with them. Uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I suppose perhaps new mom was younger than (laughs) than the kids. Who knows? At any rate, 
a uh, lot, a lot of animosity there. So when Dad remarried, he had rewritten his entire will so that 50% of everything he had went to his new wife. The other 50% went to his, uh, I think it was daughter and son-in-law, you know, basically the, the kids there. Well, what he had not done was paid any attention to his life insurance policy at work. The life insurance policy in the fine print said that if the insured did not make a beneficiary arrangement, 100% would automatically go to, yes, you can see this coming down Main Street, the spouse. So the $100,000 life insurance policy went to the new stepmother. Now, clearly in the guy's will, it was obvious that he really wanted everything split 50-50. The fact is he just forgot or never got around to putting a beneficiary designation on his group life insurance policy. So by law, all the money went to the stepmom. And the kids in my office said, what can we do? And at that point, there was very little they could do. I said, really nothing. I think now they've loosened the laws a little, so they might have had some way to contest that. But uh, it's very, very tricky. So be very, very careful with life insurance, annuities, retirement plans. Make sure the beneficiaries line up with your will. Yeah, you can certainly have problems there, and I know coming from the from the law side, I've talked to people with beneficiary designation changes and things. And when you, if you don't have everything lined up, and it doesn't always work, because again, things change. We have life events that change the landscape of things. We may have a we may have financial planning documents that identify two children, and now we have three, and one of them, you know. So you have to go through and audit these documents and make sure that things are. Uh, you know, certainly up to par with the current current codes and legislation and what's going on. Um, you know, I, I find you know it's interesting talking about so the non probate assets like life insurance policies. How many people uh, seem to miss that if they have a, a million dollar life insurance policy that when they die that's going to be an asset and they say, well, I don't have a million dollars in assets. Well, guess what? Your estate may end up with you know if if it's depending on what what you do. So uh, exactly, you know, that, yeah. And let me let me share a, a story. I I don't know if my uh, <clears throat> if my wife's going to listen to this listen to this broadcast or not. But uh, when I was younger, uh, in college, I fell in love with this girl. You know, wonderful girl, and I thought we were going to get married. I was really trying to convince her to do so. And one of the things I did to show her how responsible I was is I bought a life insurance policy. It was a I think one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something, which back then was you know not insignificant. And I named her as the beneficiary because I was, again, planning on spending the rest of my life with her. Well, she didn't have the same idea and finally just said, you know, I just really don't think this is going to work out. We, we probably better just stay friends. You know that old thing about let's we'd be better off as friends. I love you like a brother. We've all heard those those lines which make your heart sink. So I was despondent, and I put the life insurance policy away and, and sort of forgot about it. Well, I don't know how many years later, four or five years later, whenever it was, I got married to the wife that I have now been married to for 24 years this November. And she's a CPA, so she's organized, and she likes to file things and keep things where they need to be in the file cabinet and so on. So we've been married, I don't know, a few months maybe, maybe six months, and she's filing things, and she comes she comes upon this life insurance policy. <laughs> and she just happens to go to the beneficiary page, and I hear this voice from the from the office room in the house. What is this? 
do you know who's the beneficiary? And I said, uh, no. And she said, it's Jill. And I said, well, um, we we can get that changed. And she said, you bet we can. And I said, don't <laughs> worry, Jill. Jill's a really nice girl. If, if I died, I'm sure she would have given you the money. <laughs> Vicky said, yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> So I got to change pronto, but you know it, it can happen. You forget about these things, and you never know what kind of a problem it could cause later on. I mean, the the, the uh, example I like to use when it comes to wills and things is, I mean, this is a, like a double whammy. Let's say somebody has that million dollar policy you were talking about, and let's say that uh, they didn't name a beneficiary, or maybe they put the estate, which is a kind of a uh, usually not a good thing to do with life insurance. Because then the money that would have passed outside probate gets to go through probate, which is an unnecessary step. Anyway, but let's say a million dollars and it's left to your estate. Well, and let's say that uh, you are killed in a common accident with your spouse and your kids are under 18. Let's say you have uh, three kids, six, 10, and 14. Well, the million dollars goes into your estate and the will, let's say you didn't have a will. This is the double whammy. You didn't uh, didn't name a beneficiary, and you don't have a will. Well, what happens is that money then goes into this sort of limbo land, and the state basically will say, okay, somebody has got to be in charge of these kids, and kids that age cannot own property, so they can't get the money till they're 18. Uh, generally speaking, 18. It might be older in certain states. Anyway, uh, let's just say 18. Well, what happens? They look around for a relative. And they say, well, who's who's on the you know down the the chain of of connectedness? Who do we want this money to go to? And they find that Weird Uncle Ralph is the closest relative to your three kids. And so Weird Uncle Ralph becomes the trustee of a million dollars. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Weird Uncle Ralph decides that he needs to buy a Corvette to take the kids to school. And you know, it's for their benefit, of course. And he needs to buy a you know five hundred thousand dollar house because his is way too small to adequately take care of the kids. And you could see some of the problems. You can end up with things that are not anywhere close to what you would have wanted. And same goes for second marriages and so forth. You know, you die, and uh, all you know your 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 husband's kids get all the money, and your kids don't get any. I mean, there's things. You, well, you you know you know you're involved with this stuff. You probably see this every day. Uh, that the lack of good planning. Can can cause all sorts of unforeseen consequences, and some of them are just tragic. You know, all over the place, and most of it is a publicist. I mean, that's what I practice today, and I see people, um, uh, you know, committing all sorts of, <laughs> you know, things as far as um, you know, defamation or copyright infringement or trademark. It's it's it's, it's amazing. Um, I don't care. And I'll tell you what. This is coming from, you know coming out of a good school for journalism and broadcast and then, you know, communications and also going to law school, working in entertainment and business, I'll tell you, you always find a professional. You know, you could shave down your own teeth or you could go to a dentist. I suggest the dentist is always going to do a better job. And, you know, a lot of these things are, are good at tax time anyway. So, Chris, thanks for being on the show today. What's, again, a good way for people to get in touch with you? Well, they can call me if, uh, if they'd like to. I'm out here in Lakewood, Washington. I'm licensed in a number of states, but not all of them. Uh, my number is 866-662-7526. It's easy to remember. It's 866-ON-A-PLAN. And I probably should read this disclaimer. Uh, all sure. securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member FINRA, SIPC, 11440 North Jog Road, Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, 
334185614722000 investments are not FDIC and UCUA insured no bank credit union guarantee may lose value money concepts advisory services registered investment advisor with the SEC there you go good job <laughs> I should be an attorney All right. <laughs> I thought, you know, I slowed down on my disclaimer because people were getting a headache. <laughs> so, that's great. That's great. Thanks again for being on the show. We also want to thank all of our guests for tuning in and listening, and thank you for sharing our links in your broadcast network. You can always email me if you have any direct questions. I don't get my email out often, but it is nick, N-I-C-K, at proservepr.com. So N-I-C-K at P-R-O-S-E-R-V-E-P-R.com. We also want to let you know that our Money Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain you and bring you finance industry professionals, consumers, and guests, tips, tools, and news that you can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers. With our guests located and listeners worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine from Money Talk Radio, and I thank you all for your time.